In the early morning light, Smoke Jaguar was hunting a deer that he had spotted a few days previously. He was a respected and talented hunter who, over the years, had served as a competent warrior when the need arose. Smoke Jaguar enjoyed the time he spent hunting in the forest, as it got him away from the village life with all of its noise and bustle, gossip and petty bickering over property rights, religious ceremony, tradesmen endlessly trying to sell their wares that were just refused the day prior. But out here, in the forested jungle, Smoke Jaguar could clear his mind and sort of reset himself. He hunted for food, not for fun, and before setting out he gave thanks and asked forgiveness for the animal life he planned to take. The entire experience was exhilarating to him. The sun's filtered radiance, scattered in bands and shafts of shimmering light, illuminated the forest and his surroundings, producing an eerie yet familiar glow. The silence from the dense flora produced a feeling of insulation that further heightened the senses for tracking and killing deer. The smells were different too. God knows what mix of smells you would be subjected to back at the village, with all the cooking and small manufacturing, the ubiquitous stench of humans packed closely together, all with different levels of hygiene. It often made him feel as though village life had dimmed the senses the gods had gave him, and he wondered to himself if living in villages was the fog that the gods had placed over the eyes of the Maya to keep them from being greater than their creators. Time was experienced differently here in the forest as well, and he had time to think important thoughts, things that would never come to him at the village. And the interplay between prey and predator, well, that was always intoxicating as well. Looking down, Smoke Jaguar sees the fresh tracks in the damp soil that lay before him. He picks up a small amount of dirt. It loosely rests in his cupped hands, and he gives it a confirming whiff. Yes, he was on the right track. He could almost taste the meal that would follow later today from the deer he would surely capture. In the distance, he hears the crack of a twig and immediately recognizes the lucky break. He smiles to himself at the careless mistake of the deer and thinks, well, I'd rather be lucky than good any day. With his mind relaxed and muscles tensed, Smoke Jaguar drew back his obsidian-tipped arrow on his best bow. Smoke Jaguar was the ablest of hunters, and he had proved it time and time again. His attention to detail, tracking skills, and seemingly intuitive sense of his prey had brought him great honor in his village. As the unwitting prey moved into a slight clearing, Smoke Jaguar knew the moment had presented itself. But in that split second between recognition and release, the deer was startled and sprinted away, alarmed by indistinct shouting coming from the shoreline. Smoke Jaguar released a desperately hopeless arrow that struck harmlessly into the side of a tree. Frustrated and angry, the accomplished hunter hastily retrieved his arrow and cursed the voices who robbed him of his prey. Suddenly, Another moment of recognition washed over Smoke Jaguar as he realized he couldn't understand the words that had startled his dinner away. Silently, the great hunter laced his way through the jungle to a cliffside to look down at the shore. Fear was something he had not felt since childhood, but this was not that. No, this would be better described as sheer terror, and it engulfed Smoke Jaguar as he beheld massive ships that looked like houses that rode upon the waves and they carried what must be gods, dressed in brilliant clothing. Their armor sharply reflected the bright sunlight, and it hurt the hunter's eyes to look directly upon the men, after being in the lower lighting of the dense jungle for so long. 
Their language was brutish and incomprehensible. The manner of dress was terrifying and unlike anything he had ever seen. The massive beasts that these gods brought with them and rode upon were nightmarish and obviously quite powerful. Were they half man, half beast? Were they magical beings sent to punish his people for some sacrilege his village had committed? It was all too much for the great hunter, and fearfully he ran back to his village, and upon returning Smoke Jaguar would breathlessly struggle to describe the beasts coming up from the shoreline. With no reference for such creatures, his words failed him, and the best he could come up with were big, powerful sky dog. The villagers knew Smoke Jaguar well, and knew that he was not easily frightened. The visibly shaking and frightened man they saw before them was trying to warn them, but what had he really seen? They could not process the man's stammering words, let alone realize that the end was near. The Spanish had arrived. They needed gold, and nothing would stop them. The Post-Classic Period, from 950 A.D., to 1539 AD. The beginning of the post-classic will give us the rise of the newcomers called Toltec and the subsequent uh, rise of the Aztecs. The blending of cultures has already begun, as we have seen in Chichen Itza with monuments inspired by Toltec Teotihuacan influence. The end of the classic period is marked by the utter collapse of all of the major Mayan cities at the hands of the Spanish. When the Spanish arrived, they were fresh from crushing the Aztecs in 1521, and they then proceeded to kill off upwards of 90% of the Maya with their futuristic weapons of war, good old-fashioned deceit, and insidious European diseases from which the natives had no immunity. Once the Spanish invaded and brought an end to the major Maya cities in the 16th century, they still had the undesirable task of bringing the entire region under Spanish control. Indeed, the Maya continued to heartily resist, and it took nearly 200 years before the Spanish finally wrested control of the people and their lands to the point where the Maya were no longer a threat. From the Maya perspective, they were never actually a threat to the Spanish, and the Spanish really could have just left them alone and kept on sailing. But since the Spanish had invaded and the native people were resisting, well, to the Spanish, those thankless Maya were seen as a persistent threat by the invaders. When you take history and oscillate between the perspectives of warring peoples, you come to the understanding that a lot of the problems of the world could be entirely avoided by simply applying rational thought. You also see that, uh, that what drives people to do things that they do. The perspective that time can give you uh, provides both clarity and complexity, and what looks like a simple fix to ancient problems often completely ignores the zeitgeist of the people, those elaborate intricacies that compel us to do what we think we must. The Spanish were driven by Christian zealotry and the desire for power and material wealth in this world. Some fair questions might be, if you're truly zealous for Christianity, why do you care at all about power and wealth in the here and now? What part of Christ's teachings are you actually following? And whether you think it was the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, one thing is clear, the message was not, blessed are the conquistadors, for they shall inherit the earth. Now was it? However convenient, it's not entirely fair to cast stones at the Spanish without acknowledging that the Maya were driven by the same things, religion, wealth, and power. All of the city-states wanted to be top dog, and all had some tweak on the religion or focus on particular religious aspects that made them ever so slightly different from each other. 
the Maya, were not immune to these temptations. Indeed, whenever a civilization gains wealth or power, they seem to always look to increase said wealth and power, and often by the worst means possible. We have seen that the Maya were a complex people. They were capable of beautiful works of art and engineering, but as a counterbalance, they were also not shy about human sacrifice to please the gods and get what they needed. Sounds a lot like the Spanish, doesn't it? While the Spanish didn't sacrifice humans per se, I would categorize genocide as a form of human sacrifice, wouldn't you? My point here is that it's not the duality that these cultures had that makes one worse than the other. We all express duality as culture and individually as well. In the Maya, we're not some innocent people who were just jungle hippies that drank hot cocoa and sang kumbaya around campfires. They could be quite vicious, no doubt about it. I would even go further and say that really the Spanish were only doing to the Maya and to the Aztecs precisely what the Maya and the Aztecs did to each other in their neighboring communities. Indeed, many Mesoamerican cultures colonized, influenced, and warred with their neighbors since time immemorable. War was important to Mesoamerican culture. They needed blood sacrifice to please their gods. And bear in mind, there's a pantheon of over 200 gods by now. So they used war to capture warriors for sacrifice. It's why they never developed weapons that were all that lethal. They only wanted to wound their opponent because their sacrifice was far more valuable than battlefield kills. The Aztecs especially were good at demanding tribute and keeping conquered lands under thumb. And though we call it trade with the Olmec, I still believe the Olmec just wielded their economic power in ways that were at least as aggressive as war. They just didn't need captives because the need for human sacrifice had not really developed yet. And there was arguably less people, so less drain on resources, and that would have made for less competition and stress for the Olmec. They just didn't have to resort to war for anything, but they would have if resources got as tight as they were by the post-classic period. To me, what makes the Spanish the villain here, and clearly the Spanish are the villains here, is the extreme imbalance of power used to utterly destroy a people who were, by this time, well-versed in destroying themselves, as evidenced by the numerous abandoned cities. The Maya may have taken part in savagery, but they were doing it to themselves, on equal footing, and at least they had a chance to resist each other's aggression. They had no chance against the Spanish, and the Spaniards knew it. It only took a few hundred well-armed Spanish to crush cities and kill tens of thousands of Mayans, and that was before the pox began to show itself. Without being too glib, it's like the scene in Billy Madison where Adam Sandler starts whipping the dodgeball at the grade school kids, and he quickly wins against 20 or 30 kids because of his utter physical dominance over them. Purposeful exertion of extreme power over the weak or defenseless is an evil unlike any other, regardless of context. In 1697, the Spanish conquered the last independent Maya city-state, the Itza of Tayasal, and forever closed the door on the ways of the Maya. Their descendants today number in the millions, and many practice similar traditions to the ancient Maya along with hybrid practices of Mayan-slash-Catholicism. Here's a look at one of those practices called Hanal Pishan. Hanal Pishan means food for the souls, and it's a lot like the Day of the Dead. The Pishan part of the word means soul, and each soul had its own brand of traits that they were imbued with, some good, some bad. These traits would express the character of a person in their lifetime, and their soul would return uh, to the underworld when physical life had ended. 
Through a sock bay paved with ritual and prayer, they would journey back to this world to be reincarnated and live again, because, for the Maya, time was cyclical and repeating. Bodies of the commoner class were often buried underneath the floors of the homes where the person had once lived. And you thought your basement was scary at night. What seems even more extreme would be the elite, whose heads would be removed and the flesh boiled away, revealing the skull. The skull would then be decorated and displayed on family altars, surrounded by food and drink the deceased had enjoyed in their past lifetime, so their souls could be happy once more. The souls would come in the night and eat the foods laid out for them, kind of like Santa and his cookies. And one of the foods is called pib, and it is a tamale stuffed with game meat or pork, seasoned with achiote and cooked underground. Now, achiote is a paste made of a netto, cumin, coriander, pepper, oregano, cloves, and garlic. Don't bother checking your cupboard to see if you have those spices on hand because this type of tamale was only prepared for Hanala Pishan. The underground cooking was a nod to the underworld from whence the souls had journeyed. It is likely that the early form of this tradition was a daily small reverence for those that had passed, and over time it grew into this elaborate eight-day ceremony. Well, as you can imagine, the Spanish were not fans of this practice at all and tried to eradicate it, but were unsuccessful. As Catholics in the 16th century, the Spanish did not believe in reincarnation, and the Mayan common practice of cremating the headless bodies and keeping the ashes was anathema as well. Eventually, the Spanish conceded and established the 31st of October through the 2nd of November as the days the tribes of Mesoamerica could celebrate their dead. This matched up nicely with All Souls Day for the Catholic faith, so I guess compromise was something the Spanish could do after all. The celebration kicks off in the evening hours of the 31st in a procession called the Parade of Souls, where people today dress as the dead and parade from a cemetery to a designated place of importance in their city. It is meant to represent the journey of the soul through the underworld. In 2008, Hanal Pishan and the Day of the Dead were kind of lumped together and officially inscribed in UNESCO's representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. The Day of the Dead is recognized internationally as being of great importance, and it demonstrates Mesoamerica's beautiful religious and cultural traditions. Now, I hesitate to walk through another city, as it's not always compelling listening, but I would have to burn my microphone if I had failed to mention Tikal, and it's very compelling story. Tikal was a major city, not just in history, but as archaeological finds as well. You will also begin to see more and more connections and changes throughout the Mayan culture towards uh, Teotihuacan slash Toltec and Aztec cultural norms. Keep in mind that the Toltec peaked in this time frame, and the Aztec were established only a little later in the mid-13th century, meaning that they were on the rise concurrent with the Mayan decline. So without further ado, the city of Tikal. Now, since I have described cities before, I'm sure it's not going to shock you to find out that there are some massive pyramids and many lesser pyramids in Tikal. There are great causeways and water reservoirs, 
and many carved stone structures called stelae as well. Tikal was built in stages, so it wasn't a planned great city from the start, like maybe Ushmal or Teotihuacan. And when I say built in stages, I mean across millennia, as the pyramid called El Mundo Perdido shows evidence that its beginnings were somewhere around the 6th century B.C. We see Tulu Tablero style in the later editions, and we all know by now that is Teotihuacan influenced. El Mundo Perdido translates to the lost world, and the pyramid is about 100 feet tall and houses the mortal remains of the early rulers and other elite of Tikal. We don't know the names or achievements of many of these people, as the written history of Tikal does not begin until almost the 4th century AD with a ruler named Foliated Jaguar on July 6th, uh, 292 AD. By now, you know I'm just transfixed by the names, so I'll recite a few of them for you now. There's Animal Headdress in 300 AD. There's Queen Jaguar. Uh, she's the earliest known woman ruler in the Mayan world uh, in 317 AD. Stormy Sky, who is depicted on Stele as crowning himself and ushering in the ninth Boktun. There's Jaguar Paw, First Crocodile, Sky Rain, and so on. As an aside, some of these names were made up by archaeologists because the glyphs looked like one thing and the archaeologist at the time just didn't know how to translate the Mayan text. So you get a person named Doublebird, whose name is certainly not Doublebird, but his glyph had two birds on it. So that's the name he stuck with. Another is Jaguarpaw, who we just talked about. His name actually means Great Flint Claw, which is still pretty cool if you ask me. Instead of rattling off names and buildings uh, and stelae throughout the site, I want to change it up a bit and recount for you the story of Tikal. It's one that could easily be a great movie. So if I have any millionaire listeners out there, uh, A, please donate to the podcast. And B, uh, if you're itching to spend some more money, here's my pitch. The story of Tikal. Though technically a thriving city from the pre-classic to the late classic period, Tikal collapsed for good in the early part of the post-classic, so I'm using it as a bridge between the two time periods. Tikal is a story of prosperity, betrayal, followed by 130 years of repression, a return to prosperity after a revolt, subsequent vengeance on the betrayers, and then complete collapse once the resources completely gave out. Tikal may have enjoyed a population influx from the fall of El Mirador back in the first century, and it rapidly came to prominence along with Kalakmul, who, if you remember from a previous episode, uh, would go on to become one of the superpowers of the Mayan world. Both cities were major players at their height, and the two great competitors would clash in what the Mayan called a Star War. The term Star War is reserved for the most serious confrontations the Maya could conceive of like a nuclear war today, I guess. When the Maya declared a star war, it was a war not for captives or for sacrifice, but for a conquest and utter destruction of their enemy. And they used the placement of the stars to plan their attack. Do you remember which star a Teotihuacan-inspired city looked to for favor and warfare? If you said Venus in the form of the Venus Tlaloc warrior, you would be absolutely right. We'll start in the mid-3rd century, where Tikal had become an important city and began trade relations with Teotihuacan, which would also be the source of their initial betrayal. By the, by the late 3rd century, the relationship with Teotihuacan, 
brought a warlord named Siya Kak, or Fireborn, sometimes called Smoking Frog. Siya Kak arrived in January of 378 and was recorded as an emissary of Spear Thrower Owl from Teotihuacan. Remember the warrior owl glyphs from the Teotihuacan episode? The day Siya Kak arrives in Tikal, the then ruler named Jaguar Paw just so happens to die. Speculation by archaeologists on whether he was killed or just died by happenstance is still swirling today, but the fact that the son of Spear Thrower Owl gets installed on the throne the following September uh, in 379 AD may be an indicator that foul play was at work. Now, there are no records of a military clash, and that may be because it was an inside job, a coup by the elite of Tikal. Regardless of what happened, the name of the new ruler would be First Crocodile, and he married uh, Tikal royalty to legitimize his claim to the throne. Then he reigned for 47 years. The acquisition of such an influential state by Teotihuacan changed the landscape of the greater Mayan world and greatly increased the power and reach of Tikal and Teotihuacan. Upon his death, a Talud Tablero-style monument was erected in the middle of the main plaza with a stone shaft carved into it and a circular glyph at the top that read Spear Thrower Owl. It looked like a giant scepter made out of stone. Like the pink structure in Takalikaba, it was a power monument meant to remind everyone who saw it who the boss really was. By the 5th century, Tikal's reach was such that it could influence Copan 250 miles to the south, and along with Teotihuacan, they were instrumental in establishing the first of the 16 great rulers, Yashkukmo, the legendary leader who was revered by Copan throughout their existence. By the mid-4th century, Kalakmul and Tikal were becoming serious rivals, and their relationship was further soured by an attack on Kalakmul's ally city, Mesal, by Tikal's ruler, Khan Chitam. This indignity was repaid by proxy as Kalakmul's smaller allies near Tikal captured some of Tikal's nobles and sacrificed them. Only a few years later, we run into Lady Tikal, who is another female ruler, but this one is more ominous. It wasn't because the people of Tikal were so progressive that they loved women rulers, the Lady of Tikal ascended to the throne because of a lack of royal bloodline rulers. They literally could not fill the vacancy with anyone else, so they stuck her on the throne where she co-ruled with another lord until their deaths in 527 AD. In 556 AD, Tikal attacks the city of Karakul to the southeast of Tikal. They used to be their ally, and for some explained, unexplained reason, Tikal feels the need to attack Karakul. This is the beginning of the Star War I spoke of earlier. The ritual timing was aligned with the first rising of the Venus star in the sky. As Tikal is attacking Karakul, another city called Naranjo that is just to the east of Tikal attacks Tikal out of nowhere and, wait for the tea to spill, it turns out that Kalakmul has been conspiring with both cities to provoke this war with the hopes of destroying Tikal while their army is battling Karakul. Now that it's out in the open, Kalakmul says to the neighboring cities, Pick a side, boys. You're either with me or against me. And though Tikal is influential, clearly Kalakmul was a more formidable threat, so the smaller surrounding cities sided with them. In 562 AD, Karakal prevails in the Star War, 
and takes the city of Tikal and executes its current rulers under the approving eye of Kalakmul. Tikal is reduced to a vassal state of sorts with Kalakmul, dictating what they can and cannot do. On the side of cannot do, Tikal is not allowed to build any temples or defining structures for 130 years. On the side of can do, Kalakmul oddly allows the continuation of Tikal's royal bloodline. It doesn't take a master of history to recognize that you can't leave rival leadership in place when your aim is to conquer, because that's just a recipe for future rebellion. Whether out of ignorance, or hubris, or just plain old-fashioned miscalculating, Kalak Mool commits this unfathomable blunder, which they will later regret. Let's fast forward a hundred years, and far from being done humiliating Tikal, Kalak Mool now decides to create a split in the royal family of Tikal so that they can found a new city. Today we call that city Dos Pilas, and it was loyal to Kalak Mool and used the royal Tikal bloodline as the ruler of that city. It made sense to the rulers of Kalak Mool because they were really interested in contacting the ancestors of Tikal for some reason, and they needed royal Tikal blood as sacrifice to contact them. Once Tikal gets wind of the bloodletting sacrifices and attempts to contact the ancestors, they invade Dos Pilas and drive out the vassal ruler in 672 AD. The superpower Kalak Mool gets really riled up and intervenes directly this time and utterly destroys the army of Tikal and reinstalls the previously driven out ruler of Dos Pilas. Esteli at Dos Pilas reads like a Fangoria magazine recounting the decapitations, dismemberment, and subsequent emptying of blood from the corpses to be pooled up for later use. On August 5th, 695 AD, the ruler of Tikal, Hassal Chan Kawil, leads an army that finally defeats Kalakmul and restores the sovereignty of Tikal. Hassal built two massive temples and a gallery of Stella now that the 130-year ban had passed and Kalakmul was no longer in power. Hassan had a son who succeeded him, and Yakin Chan Kawil was a chip off the old block. While his old man had defeated the superpower Kalak Mool, his boy decides to devote his entire reign to crushing the cities that supported Kalak Mool and the betrayal of trust of Tikal those many years ago. He also built Temple 4 at Tikal, which stands 210 feet tall and is filled with imagery of him conquering his enemies. Dakin goes on to have Temple 5 and Temple 6 built because, well, he needed more room for imagery of more defeated enemies. Yakin built causeways uh, that reached the said temples, and he created the water reservoirs that were also found at the site. With Kalak Mool out of the picture, the duplicitous cities put back in their place, and all of these new building projects, Tikal was now back on top and set up for an endless run of good fortune. I mean, what could go wrong? The city supported upwards of 90,000 people at its peak, but due to endemic warfare and the coalescing of people closer to the city, the already strained natural resources were exhausted. Fields were overplanted, causing low yields, and the water supply became contaminated with mercury that poisoned the inhabitants of Tikal. Indeed, Tikal lost the majority of its population in a span of 100 years between 850 AD and 950 AD, and the centralized government collapsed. During this time, lesser cities that were once firmly under Tikal's control asserted their independence and Tikal was too weak to respond. 
as societal collapse commenced, the once great city basically became a refugee camp with the poor and destitute taking over whatever structures that remained. These people had no regard for the religious ceremony and societal structures that once governed them. They made up their own rituals and hosted them in whatever buildings they wanted. They left garbage and other refuse in the once formal and illustrious buildings, and they robbed the tombs of their rulers to get at the jade and other valuables that were supposed to accompany the deceased to the afterlife. These unfortunate souls were suffering from unchecked mercury poisoning, poverty, and starvation, so let's not judge them too harshly. They were just doing what they thought they had to, given the terrible situation they were in. Now the mercury, that came from the drinking water, as methyl mercury, a water-soluble and highly toxic form of mercury. But it also likely came from the cinnabar they used for painting their homes and monuments and official administrative structures. The neurological effects would have been obvious to all outsiders looking in, but of course, the people of Tikal had no idea what mercury was or how, how harmful it could be. Likely, the inhabitants had higher infant mortality and deformity than ever before. Those who lived in this environment also likely experienced low IQ and mental disorders, damaged mortar skills, problems with memory and concentration, and so on. As their ability to fend for themselves and reproduce sharply declined, the people of Tikal eventually exhausted their final resource and expired somewhere in the 11th century. The jungle, in response, delicately embraced the city with its leafy vines and obscured the ruins until it would be rediscovered in the mid-19th century by Modesto Mendez and Ambrosio Tut, and their findings would be further expounded upon in the coming years as more excavations took place. The Arrival of the Spanish there are many other wonderful cities and buildings we could look at throughout the Mayan world, and though the nostalgia and feel-good moments are fun to relay, the sad fact is that we are heading for a hard stop called the Conquistadors. Most of the once great Mayan cities ended the same way anyhow, with resources exhausted, the people succumbed to famine and disease, and the city is either conquered or abandoned. As a civilization, the Maya are in decline and vulnerable, which is almost always the condition when fate becomes the cruelest of mistresses. It prompts the question of, why were the Spanish even in the Americas? Didn't they have enough to do in Europe? Well, have you ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Here's how it plays out. In the Middle Ages, Europe had lucrative trade with China and the Indies uh, through use of the Black Sea and the Silk Road, etc. No one was interested in exploration except there were some grumblings about finding a new path to the east about without having to sail around Africa. Even so, it wasn't really an emergency. It would have just been more convenient. But not everyone was so complacent. Enter the Ottomans. From April 6, 1453 to May 29th of the same year, the Ottomans constantly bombarded the city of Constantinople until the legendary walls fell, the city was captured, and its inhabitants were slaughtered. The city was then renamed Istanbul. With the capture of the city, the Turks were now in control of all trade from Europe to the east, and they used those networks to enrich themselves, not the infidel Europeans. With the stranglehold on their economics solidly applied, 
the Europeans needed a way to get to the east. Bandits and pirates were always an issue when dealing in trade, but now it was all too likely that you would be blown apart by Janissary fire or cut down by the elite Sapahi cavalrymen, and that is no laughing matter. The emergency was created, and now here comes a seemingly crazy man who has errant maps of the world, and he claims that he can easily get to the east just by sailing west. Twice, Columbus tries to sell his crackpot idea to the Portuguese, who essentially tell him to fly off because they were building ports as stopping points around Africa, so they had their own plan of how they were going to get the trade routes up and going again. England and France would rebuke Columbus as well, but Spain, quite possibly the least wealthy European power at the time, agrees to back Columbus, but they can only offer three modest ships, some crewmen, and a small amount of cash, something on the order of about $10,000 in today's money. The initial voyage was estimated to cost approximately $1 million of today's money just for provisions. The rest of the money that was required would have to be found by Columbus himself, and obviously he did, and we all know what then transpired. It's important to note that Spain was really just looking to set up a few trade colonies to build wealth and not be the pauper kingdom of the world anymore. What it eventually got was well beyond anyone's imagination. In terms of just gold and silver, we're talking almost 200 tons of gold and 16,000 tons of silver. That's over 11 billion modern day dollars for an investment of 10,000 and a few small ships. To put a further point on the matter, this was at a time where skilled laborers like master masons and master carpenters made about $14 a year. The level of wealth that the Spanish had stumbled into was unbelievable, and the Spanish then used this wealth to secure their spot as a world power. But if it weren't for the Ottomans capturing Constantinople, no one would have ever sailed west to get to the east. By 1502, the Spanish were aware of the Maya through accidental encounters off the coast of Honduras and small coastal trading villages. In 1511, a shipwrecked Spanish galleon deposited soldiers and priests into the hands of the Maya, who promptly enslaved two of them, a soldier named Gonzalo Guerrero and a former priest named Geronimo de Aguilar, and they then proceeded to sacrifice all the other survivors. As more and more Spanish came, the powerful Aztecs to the west were conquered by 1521, and the Spanish were intoxicated with the promises of gold and wealth and riches beyond their wildest dreams. The term La Quinta, meaning one-fifth, uh, refers to the amount of wealth the conquistadors had to send back to Spain, and the rest was theirs for the keeping, so the more one plundered, the wealthier he became. It's fitting that the majority of the conquistadors who lived through this time and accumulated great wealth at the expense of the Mesoamericans all squandered it, and many died poor and alone. The Spaniards were far too great an adversary for the Maya in terms of brute strength. They had broadswords, lances, pikes, crossbows, arquebuses, and artillery pieces. Add to that military tactics, metal body armor, warships, and what seemed to be supernatural beasts from the great beyond called horses. The Spanish carried all of this firepower, but the most potent was yet to come, disease. The old world had made them carriers of smallpox, and it was a weapon that killed without cost to valuable resources, like powder, shot, or even Spanish soldiers. 
Indeed, much of the native population would be lost mostly to this unseen threat. The Maya, on the other hand, were outfitted with bow and arrow, flint or obsidian-tipped spears, cotton armor, and rocks. Their advantage was their familiarity with the terrain and the hot, suffocating jungle that was nearly inaccessible to the Spanish. Many Spaniards would not go anywhere near the jungle, as even their clothes would break down to mere rags in a few months due to the humid and unyielding jungle environment. This was little comfort indeed for the Maya, but they held on for nearly 200 years, literally fighting for their lives. In 1697, the last of the Mayan kingdoms fell to the Spanish, the kingdom of Itza, that had still hold on to their traditional beliefs until the bitter end. It was a short battle, fought by exhausted natives against a relentless machine of Spanish conquest and conversion. Their gods had abandoned them, their people had perished, their history had been burnt, and their ways were gone for all time. Shibalba had come to earth, and the lords of death and sickness were the symbol of the cross and reveled in their insatiable appetite for conquest. Today, the descendants of this once great people number only six to seven million, and they live in southern Mexico, Belize, Honduras, and Guatemala. Yucatec Maya is the dominant language spoken, but there are other variants as well. Though the Maya will never rise to their former glory again, their legacy will endure as one of the greatest cultures to have ever graced our human history. Next time on Mesoamericana Plus, we will go back to the Toltec people. Were they real or an invention of the later Aztec? Are they the Atlanteans? Are they the mysterious sea peoples that came to Egypt and other Mediterranean cultures in 1000 BC? Tune in to find out and please visit the website at www.mesoplus.net. That's www.mesoplus.net. And consider donating to this podcast. I would like to thank, personally, Alexander S. for his very generous contribution a few weeks ago, and I want everyone to know that I truly appreciate all the listens and contributions that have come forth so far. We'll see you next time on Mesoamericana Plus.